University Baptist Church is a faith community striving to think critically, live creatively, and love continually in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. We gather on Sunday mornings at 5775 Highland Road between Lee Drive and Kenilworth Parkland. Visit ubc-br.org or at ubcbr on Facebook for more information. In the last few years, there's been a word that's been added to the dictionary. Uh, the word is selfie. It's estimated that the average lifespan is 27,375 days. The average millennial will take over 25,000 selfies in their lifetime. Here's some crazy ones, uh, which some of these would help me throw out this important statistic, which is since 2011, over 300 people have died from selfie accidents. Uh, it's more likely to die from taking a selfie than you are to be attacked uh, by a shark. So that'll put that a little perspective. However, uh, selfie is not a new concept. Here's the earliest selfie on record. Pretty cool. But this one might top them all off, this last one we have here. This is a selfie from a World War I pilot in flight. Is there anything more audacious than taking a selfie in the middle of a dogfight? <laughs> it's pretty crazy. So we're in this series, Audacious, in which we're looking at that every day we have the opportunity to do something radical, and it's called prayer. And we're wrapping up our series today, and we're looking at different types of prayer and examining why they matter for our life and how they lead us to thriving. And we're not only learning about different types of prayers, but we're challenging ourselves to put them into practice each day to develop a fiercer and deeper journey with God. This morning, we're looking at the nature of an audacious prayer of capitulations. For this, we take a look at the book of Isaiah, chapter 6, verse 1. Now, as you're turning there, let me tell you a little background about the prophet. This is Isaiah the prophet, who stripped butt naked and preached for three years. So, just in case you think my preaching's ever bad, at least I'm not standing up here naked. <laughs> Can you imagine being called by God to strip naked to make a point to the people? Isaiah 6, 1 reads, in the, in the year that King Uzziah died. Now, we're immediately plunged into a period of sadness and bitter political division. Uzziah was a king of the southern kingdom of the Hebrew people called Judah. He died somewhere around the year of 733 BCE. Now, Isaiah and his sons had front row seats to the political drama of this era because they saw four different kings rise and fall in this period of time. So let me set the scene for you. The kingdom under David that was once united no longer stands. The Hebrew people are divided into two different kingdoms, the northern kingdom known as Israel and the southern kingdom known as Judah. The division was uh, tremendous political implications during this period. Their willingness to separate and to rival each other will eventually lead to the downfall of both kingdoms. Because outside of the Hebrew kingdom in this time, you have the empire of Assyria rising up. And they would dominate for centuries, ruling with fear and subjugation. And as soon as the Assyrians were done, then came the Babylonians. And when the Babylonians were done, then came the Persians. So there's a period of about 500 years of political turmoil in the, in the nation of Israel. And yet the Hebrew people here are facing not only this turmoil as from outsiders, but also insiders. They were divided against each other in politically different ways. In one of the earliest chapters of Isaiah, the prophet appeals to the northern kingdom as an ally, and yet we find that the southern kingdom stabs them in the back yet again. 
So Isaiah's contemporaries will see just how polarizing of a culture it was among God's people. The rich taking advantage of the poor, the religious sitting in judgment against the so-called sinners, the marginalized pushed to the side and forgotten, the political lines drawn in the sand, and faithfulness to God was at a minimum. Isaiah was the unfortunate prophet who had to speak a word from God in one of the most polarizing times in history. So if Isaiah cut his teeth in a climate of 700s BCE in this type of way, I think he would have his work cut out for him in 2021 in America. To say that we live in the most polarizing time in history is an understatement. The folks at Pew Research have, have done some amazing studies to better understand just how divided America is in worldviews right now. And a recent study found from Pew that 73% of Americans believe that Republicans and Democrat voters cannot agree on political policies, let alone basic facts. 73% of people believe that we can't even agree on basic facts nowadays. Since 1994, uh, Pew has tracked the uh, political persuasion of America, and it's showing that there's this even greater divide over the last several decades where we're pitting ourselves against each other right and left, so-called conservatives and so-called liberals. And you might be thinking to yourself, Pastor, I, I don't want to hear you talk about politics. I'm, I'm not here to talk about partisan politics. But what I'm here to talk about is this growing polarization in our communities based on the language that we use to describe those that we disagree with. Politics is just a microcosm of our culture today. Daily, we are inundated with the polarizing worldview. Politics, yes, but also culture and religion and race and economics and sexuality and education and on and on. We're being forced to take a side, to pledge allegiance to a particular worldview based on the TV shows we watch, the talk radio we listen to, the podcast we stream, the, the posts we read and repost, and the conversations we have with others. And without realizing it, we have given our time and our headspace and so much of ourselves to a particular worldview. And back to our scripture, so how does God respond to this polarizing and upheaval among God's chosen people? It says this back in verse 1. In the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on the throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their face, with two they covered their feet, and with two they, cover, they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voice, the doorpost and the threshold shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. When I was a kid, we watched uh, wrestling. Now, I'm not talking about wrestling where you got two guys that are in spandex wrestling or on a mat to get points. I'm talking about Ric Flair and Hulk Hogan and Andre the Giant and the Ultimate Warrior and Sting. And the best part of wrestling is the grand entrance before a match. These meatheads don't just walk out of the locker room and into the rink. No, they come in with fireworks and lights and music and their strut. The best entrance of all time, hands down, goes to Ric Flair, who comes walking into 2001 Space Odyssey with his bedazzled robe, strutting his stuff and hollering out his woos. 
Now, Isaiah war, bore witness to one of the greatest entrances of all time. We get the idea that Isaiah found himself worshiping in the temple. And he could have been there as part of his weekly religious routine, or he could have been there in response to the death of a king. But this wouldn't be just any usual words on a screen and the worship band playing Amazing Grace kind of worship for Isaiah. This was quite unusual, especially when Isaiah began to see the Lord seating on a throne, high and raised up, in the divine robes filling the temple. It's quite unusual for any person to describe that they've seen the Lord. In fact, there's very few people in the scripture who claim to have seen God. But it's this formidable experience, Isaiah said, that he saw seraphim serving the Lord Almighty. Seraphim find their roots in the ancient Near East. They were these great beasts of fear. And yet here they are, clearing out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. At this, Isaiah declares that the doorposts and thresholds of the temple shook and was filled with smoke. The magnitude of this moment cannot be captured in words. And before Isaiah is the God that created all things and holds all things together. It is the Lord Almighty. This is the King of all the earth. This is the God of all power. This is the Lord that deserves all the glory and honor and praise and allegiance. And I don't think that there is any disconnect between the death of Israel's king and the entrance of God as king in this powerful moment with Isaiah. Like the kings who came before him and the kings who would come after him, Uzziah was probably revered and elevated among the masses. Uzziah was known, uh, he was a beloved king. He wasn't one of the corrupt kings in this time. He was a recipient of the good people's faith and confidence. But in light of, or in comparison to God, Isaiah was forced to consider what and whom does he give his allegiance. And really, that's what is at the heart of our culture right now. To what and to whom do we give our allegiance? And don't misunderstand that, that point. I'm not insinuating that there's one right side or another wrong side. I'm not stating that there's even sides when it comes to faithfulness to God and all this. At the heart of our polarizing culture is a commitment to emotional and psychological and social and spiritual level deeply rooted in our allegiance to a particular worldview and way of life. And if we do not honestly do digging around our minds, we might as well find that we do give unfair allegiance to a particular person and political party and worldview and ideologies and identity. But as Jim Wallace of Sojourners put it, election years are a drastic demonstration of America's idols. Simply put, we create an idol when we ascribe attributes or places and hope in a person or things that should only belong to God. Left and right are political categories not religious ones, attempting to mold faith to fit those labels distorts its meaning and its power. See, we have confused political parties and news channels and pundits and talking heads and celebrities and cultural warriors and even religious leaders with God. And I mean, don't get me wrong, religious people, we, we do our best to bathe our 
perspectives and try to ground them in biblical understanding. And that's why we tend to go to one worldview or another, accepting the ascent, that it's essential for our faith journey and believing that only this is the way you can live and these are the views you can have if you truly follow Jesus. And there are some big old but questions that must be asked about our worldviews, our way of living, and the truths we ascribe to. That's what God is doing as God encounters Isaiah in the temple. God's presence is a big old but question in the face of Isaiah mourning King Uzziah's death. But what happens when what and whom we give allegiance to directly rivals or contradicts Jesus? The New Testament scholar and theologian Marcus Borg writes, Jesus' statement raises a proactive and still relevant question. What belongs to God and what belongs to Caesar? And what if Caesar is Hitler or apartheid or communism or global capitalism, what, is, what it is to be the attitude of Christians towards domination systems, whether ancient or modern. What happens when our Caesar, Caesars wage war and violence? What happens when the money we give to Caesar is used for unjust things? What happens when our Caesar continues to make the rich richer and the poor poorer? And unfortunately, what tends to happen is that we give our allegiance to what and whom rather than to God, only to find ourselves theologically justifying our misguided allegiance by using God as a mascot of our worldview of what we want to be true. And Jesus tells us in the gospel that no one can serve two masters. You will hate the one or love the other. You will either despise one and serve the other. And so one of the powerful lessons that our text teaches us is that empires and rulers are finite, but God is not. For all the political leaders in history, for all the amazing advancements they have made for our civilization, for all the people they have served, at the end of the day, these are flawed individuals. More importantly, these people live and die. They live finite existence. We are finite beings. And as finite beings, it's impossible for us to understand an infinite nature of God's existence and the way that God exists within our time. And Peter tries to take a stab at this in his second letter when he wrote this, that, that a, one day to God is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like one day. Can you imagine a thousand years seeming like a day? God is from eternity to eternity, from everlasting to everlasting. And it seems as though this is the kind of moment Isaiah is having, a moment where he is encountered with this infinite God in the aftermath of a finite king's death. So which makes more sense? To put our faith and confidence in finite creatures and worldviews or in an infinite God? And look at what Isaiah says in verse 5. Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips and live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken from the tongs from the altar, and with it he touched my mouth and said to me, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sins are atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. 
the power of this moment is remarkable. Isaiah is in complete and utter shock. All Isaiah can do in this moment is to begin to confess his sin and his brokenness before an infinite God, an all-powerful and unimaginable God. And did you know the shift in Isaiah's theology from where we started? He began by talking about the death of his beloved king. But now in verse 5, he acknowledges that God is the king and God is almighty. Even in his mumbling, Isaiah recognizes that his words don't add up and that he's not worthy to even speak to this God. But in the face of Isaiah's humility and brokenness, God has a seraphim touch and cleanse him. God responds with grace and with healing. God believed that Isaiah was worthy of this moment. God had something significant in mind for this prophet. This was a moment of calling, a radical shift away from what Isaiah had been doing with his life and commissioned him into something profoundly new. And so God asks Isaiah, are you willing to go? And Isaiah responds, here I am, send me. Isaiah's capitulation to God's will and way. He he surrenders all that he has to God, his heart, his mind, his soul, his strength, his worldview, and his allegiance. He gives it over to the leadership of God so that he now can live and go as God calls him. Unlike a lot of families uh, in the first few months of the COVID-19 stay-at-home order uh, that went and decided to bring a new puppy home, we waited almost a full calendar year in the pandemic to get a puppy. And we took our time picking out a puppy with various adoption places. And on April the 7th, we brought home BB-8, a six-pound bundle of cuteness. His name's BB-8 because on his back, he has a spot that looks like the droid from Star Wars. And within a few hours, we were reminded of just how much work it is to train a puppy the constant peeing and pooping, the biting, the chewing, the lack of sleep at night. It's amazing how this six-pound creature completely changed our life cycle and sleep count. And despite the fact that we tried to bend that puppy to our will and train it for what it's best, a puppy's going to do what a puppy's going to do. I wonder if we're honest with ourselves that our relationship with God sometimes is the same. We are overjoyed that God has adopted us into God's family. We are humbled by God's willingness to love us and to give us grace despite our faults and our failings. However, we are not necessarily keenly open to God telling us what to do with our lives, what our worldview should be, what our habits and hopes and dreams and actions should be. And so we enter into this wrestling match in our soul over what we want versus what God desires, what God's ways are versus what we want our ways to be. And sometimes we give in to these things that outwardly obvious to others, but inwardly we live our lives completely different based on what we want to believe, what we want to believe to be true about this world. And we, we theologically justify everything that we desire and everything that we see to make us feel better about who we are. But is that really how faith works? What if I told you that capitulation is a necessary and ongoing step of faith? Capitulation is best described as an act of surrendering or ceasing to resist. 
it's not a declaration that out of spite or religious obligation. Instead, it's surrendering to God because we believe that though we might not understand it, God wants and knows what's best for our lives. And when we can capitulate to God, of course, whatever next comes seems so scary because we spent our entire lives in the driver's seat thinking we know what's best for our lives, but now we begin to see life through the eyes of God. The Bible is filled with stories of people who capitulated to God. Consider Abraham, who left his home and his comfort to discover a new place that God was leading. Consider Ruth, that left her homeland after her husband's death to follow her mother-in-law into a foreign land. Or what about Joseph, that had to surrender his pride and what he thought was best to believe that God really was using Mary to bring God's son into this world. But then consider the life of Jesus. As if it wasn't enough that God became flesh and walked among us and healed our infirmities and showed us the way of love, Jesus took on the full brunt of humanity's corruption by accepting his fate for the cross. In the hours leading up to his eventual arrest and torture and execution, the gospel writers tell us that Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane, in which Jesus is overwhelmed with grief to the point that he's actually sweating blood as a result of the anxiety. And Jesus prays to God that God might change the circumstances, that he might sidestep this imminent death. But, but even in the sorrow and grief over what he is asking God to not let him experience, Jesus utters this prayer to God. My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Jesus capitulates to the leadership of God to know that God knew what was best. And although God's wisdom saw that Jesus would see his fate on the cross, how the resurrection completely transformed that set of circumstances. And that's the last thing I want us to see about the power of a prayer of capitulation. It, it transforms our lives and the world. We spend our entire lives shaping our worldview into what we think is best. But when we begin to see things through God's eyes, that's when our lives begin to open up to the possibility of living into what God is doing and redeeming God's world. God doesn't encounter Isaiah in this moment to give him a politically charged agenda or, or reign as a theocratic government ruling over God's appointed people. God is inviting Isaiah to let his political agenda be shaped not by wealth and power and xenophobia and capitalism and tribalism. No, God is calling Isaiah to go, to live among the people, to speak a message of God, and to live in the way of God. God is calling Isaiah to be his representative, God's ambassador among the Hebrew people. God is inviting Isaiah to be an ambassador of hope and light and justice and compassion and goodness in a politically charged climate. The calling of Isaiah should remind us of the invitation of Jesus. An invitation that begins with a God who loves you and desires to pour mercy into your life. In a very simple and almost childlike moment, you and your creator begin a lifelong journey of growing and learning about the kingdom of God. And it's not a kingdom that will rise and fall like the kingdoms of this earth. 
It is not a kingdom that's ruled with flaw-filled men and women who have their careers and power and money and control at, at stake. But rather, it's a kingdom that has your best interest at heart. It's not a kingdom where the weak grow weaker and the strong grow stronger, the hungry grow more hungry, and the mourning fall into despair. It, it's a kingdom governed by a loving God who calls you into a new life of transformation, into a life of love and grace and humility and self-control and peace. And when Jesus calls us to follow him, it's a call to belong to God. God, this is what I have as yours. All that I have, my heart, my mind, and my soul, the way that I see this world, the way that I interact with others, it all goes over to you. Jesus is inviting us to be his representatives, his ambassadors in this world. Throughout this series, we've been ending our sermon with a prayer that corresponds to the given theme of the morning. And as we talked about, when we pray, it's not just about saying words, but it's about lifting words that we deeply mean in our heart and our mind to a God who's listening, and how powerful of an act of faith that is. So my challenge to you in the prayer that we're going to offer here in just a moment is that you pray this prayer throughout this week. The, the prayer that we're praying this morning is in uh, the newsletter, which you can find in the, the hallway out there, or you can find it online. Join me in this word of prayer as we lift it to God. This is a prayer written by the monk and theologian and social activist Thomas Merton. My Lord God, I have no idea where I am going. I do not see the road ahead of me. I cannot know for certain where it will end nor do I really know myself. The fact that I think I am following your will does not mean I'm actually doing so. But I believe the desire to please you does in fact please you. And I hope I have the desire in all that I am doing. I hope I will never do anything apart from that desire. And I know that if I do this, you will lead me by the right road though I may not know nothing about it. Therefore, I will trust you always, though I may seem to be lost and in the shadow of death. I will not fear, for you are ever with me, and you will never leave me to face my peril alone. Amen.